really been to Montgomery before other than driving by on the interstate. So it's nice to drive into Montgomery and see a little bit um, of what you guys are about. So they say you should always try to connect to your audience somehow. Um, and that's difficult down here because I'm not from here originally. But I have one thing. And here's the problem. It's going to make a, a little less than 50% of you, maybe 60% of you, it's going to make you guys mad, okay? Um, so to the majority, this is for you. To the, maybe the slight minority, I'm sorry. But um, my claim to fame, to pay, maybe to connect to you guys, is that I grew up a, about five minutes from where Nick Saban grew up in the hills of West Virginia, all right? So some of you think that's cool. Some of you are like, I hate this guy already, and, and I'm so sorry about that. But yeah, literally just five minutes, I'd say around the corner, but it's the hills of West Virginia, so around the mountainside. Um, in fact, when his mother died, Nick's mother died a few years ago, her funeral was two minutes from where I grew up. Um, my uncle played football with him, all that. So I don't know him, so don't think that I'm, I'm real cool or something, but grew up right around the corner from Nick Saban, so there's my connection maybe to you guys. But again, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. Um, good to see some old friends and people that I've met a time or two. It was nice to meet Doug. I don't know if we've ever met before, but um, we've got this unique connection as well. His nieces are my first cousins, and it's kind of an interesting connection because of adoption and stuff like that, but we've got that connection anyway. It's good to see you, see you all. I'm looking forward to meeting you guys and share with, the, share with you guys a little bit about, about missions today. It was about, well, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but we lived in, in Cusco, Peru, and loved living there, loved the people there, but it was a bit isolated, up in the mountains, about 11,000 feet, so every year when we went on vacation, we would go somewhere in Peru where we knew we could get some American food, and particularly the best place to do that was in, was in Lima. Lima is the capital city of Peru, it's a massive city, but at the time, Cusco didn't have any didn't have a Pizza Hut or a Chili's or a movie theater, it has all of that stuff now, and so we would go to Lima, and it would be this Great vacation. Now, you probably don't go on vacation to go to Pizza Hut or to the movies, but for us, we went on vacation so that we could go to Pizza Hut, Chili's, and the movies, and maybe a little bit more than that. So we went to Lima um, on vacation one time, and it just happened to be about the time that our team's missionary visas were due for renewal. We had these little cards, ID cards, and they were our, basically our missionary visas that allowed us to legally be in, in Peru. And every year, we had to send them to Lima to our lawyer, he would get them renewed and send, send them back. But it was always a little bit scary to put your legal identity in Peru in an envelope into the Peruvian mail system. We didn't, that made us pretty uncomfortable. So this time we said, hey, listen, we're going to Lima. It's perfect timing. Let us carry the whole team's IDs with us and we'll take them to our lawyer, meet him firsthand. Won't have to put it in the mail. So everybody said, yeah, that's a great idea. So the morning we left for vacation, I had 10 of these Peruvian ID cards and about $100 for each one, which is what it would cost to renew them. I had my family's passports, just because we were flying in case we needed to leave the country for an emergency or something like that, and then our vacation money. So with three couples and kids, 10 of these ID cards and the money and our passports, and I thought, where am I going to put these things to keep them safe? 
Well, Cusco's a little cool, especially early in the morning when we were leaving, so I had a jacket on. You know those Columbia jackets that have got pockets everywhere, and this one had a pocket on the inside, inside the zipper, and I thought, that's a really safe place to put these. So I put them on that, in that inside pocket, and I think I remember saying to my wife, don't let me take this jacket off at any point in time. So we board the plane, fly to Lima. Um, Arrive in Lima, we take a taxi to the hotel. We get to the hotel, our lawyer is waiting for us, and it's time for me to give these, these ID cards to him. And I'm ready to give him the cards, and I look at my wife and I say, Sharla, where's my jacket at? And she looked at me like she should have and said, I don't know where your jacket is. And I thought for a minute, and I realized that when we got into this taxi van in, at the airport, it was hot in Lima. It was cool in Cusco, hot in Lima. And so I had taken that jacket off, put it on the back of the seat that I was sitting, on, sitting in, and left it in the, in the taxi van. In a city of 8 million people, our entire team's ID, it's, I still cringe a little bit when I think about it. It was several years ago now. And so I ran back downstairs and I hopped in a taxi. I didn't know what I was, where was I going to find this? Fortunately, it was one of the official taxis that goes back to the airport back and forth. So I thought, man, if I'm really lucky, I'll go back to the airport, find this thing. So we rode back to the airport. It was, the taxi I was in must not have been entirely documented. And so we got to the airport. He's like, I can't drive in there. You're going to have to get out. So I get out and most airport drives are, are kind of long to get into the actual airport. So here's this gringo running down the airport sidewalk because I'm wanting to find this guy. So I get, get into the airport where all the taxis are and I see all the vans. They're, they're lined up and I walk down this line of vans and I finally I see one. I didn't know which, they all look the same. I didn't know which one was ours. And I happened to look in the, in the window of one and there was my jacket. It had been moved, but it was there. And it was laying across the back seat of the van the driver wasn't there, so I found another driver. I said, hey, can you find, I tried to act real calm. You know, you got to be calm so nobody realizes what I've gotten there. I said, hey, can you find this taxi driver for me? So he, he called for him, and the taxi driver came. I said, hey, I left my jacket. I tried to play it cool. I left my jacket in there. Um, do you think I could get it out? And he held out his hand. So I handed him 10 soles, about $3. He held out his hand again. So I gave him another 10 soles. And for about $7 total, he opened up his van. I got my jacket out, and everything was still in there. I've tried to calculate what it would have cost the, the team to replace all of that, just because it would cost, we would have had to make multiple trips back to Lima. Probably $10,000 is my estimate of what it would have cost to, to do all that. Again, I still cringe when I think about that, that moment. Got back in the, found another taxi, went back to the hotel, sat down on, on the couch and took a deep breath. And that was one of those moments that my passion for the people of Peru waned just a little bit. We loved Peru. We loved living there. We loved the people. We had a deep compassion for the lost. But in that moment, I think my thought was, man, let's just go back to the United States where I don't have to take taxis anymore. I'll have my own car and I won't have to drag myself in and out of taxis with the risk of losing something over and over and over again. In that moment, my passion for living in Peru had faded just, just a, maybe more than just a little bit. You see, it's funny when we think about missions. Some of you would probably say, you know what, I am, I am passionate about missions, we were passionate about the people of Peru. We had a deep love for the people of Peru, for the lost people of Peru. We were passionate about our work there. Here's the problem 
with passion and compassion and even love, sometimes those emotions fade a little bit. There are days when you're on the mission field and it is frustrating. And your passion for being there fades a little bit. And so what I need is something a little bit more consistent than my emotions to be the motivation for living in Peru. If you could think about the most evangelistic person you know, you would say, well, that person is is passionate about evangelism. Did you know that there are days that they probably are not as passionate about evangelism as they are on other days? Because that's just really how God made us, and our emotions come and go. So what we need is some sort of motivation for missions that doesn't change. And if I'm just counting on my passion for missions or my, even my love for the lost, as consistent as that should be, if I'm just counting on that, then that's going to fade. Here's what I hope to do today. I hope to excite you about missions today. I hope you leave today maybe a little bit more on fire for missions than you were when you arrived here today. But here's the problem with that that I recognize. A week or two from now, maybe even a day or two from now, some of that fire that you may feel for missions when you leave today, it's going to fade. Or somebody else's, I think I saw somewhere you're going to have a family day or a family seminar. You already had us saw it on the website. A couple of weeks or whenever that might be, somebody's going to talk about family, which is incredible and important. And you know what you're going to walk out that day passionate about? Family. And rightly so. And you'll lose a little bit of that fire for missions. And so if we're going to be motivated to be passionate about missions, we need something a little more secure, a little more unchanging than our emotions. And I would even say, and I hesitate with this one, we need more than just one or two verses that become our marching orders for missions. Because the Great Commission, those are our marching orders and incredible, and you could quote them, and and we hear them often, but here's even the problem with that. If I just stand up here and talk about the Great Commission all day, you're going to leave excited about the Great Commission, about those one or two or three or four verses that we discuss. But then in a week or two, somebody's going to talk about another verse or two in Scripture that is also, those verses are also important, and so you lose a little bit. We need something a little more foundational, And so what I want to provide for you today, at least in our Bible class and then during the worship hour, are a couple of unchanging foundations for mission that can carry our passion even when our passion dies, that allow us to remain passionate about missions even when our passion fades a little bit. And to do that, here's the question that that I want to ask, and it's kind of a weird question, perhaps a hard question to answer. What is God all about? Now, if somebody were to ask you, hey, what is, what's God all about? You would probably say, well, let's go to the Bible. So to answer the question, what is God all about? Probably the next question we need to answer is, well, what's the, what's the Bible all about, right? So if we were to try, if somebody were to ask you that question, hey, what's, what's the Bible all about? What would you say? You might say, well, it's about the love of God. There are different ways to answer that question, I recognize, but perhaps you would try to explain to them the storyline of the Bible. And there are different ways to divide this up. I've seen as many as 11 or 12 steps in the sequence of the story of the Bible. I just want to give you four. Now, I think I have a smart audience, so we're going to dive deep for a minute and think about the storyline of Scripture as it runs from beginning to end. And we would probably say, if we were to develop this storyline, it starts with creation, right? Now, 
If your Bible's like mine, that's just a page or two. It's just the very beginning of the story when God speaks into existence the earth and everything that's, that's in it. There's, there's your creation story. And as creator, God is separate in a sense from his creation. He is unique from his creation, but he is intimately involved in his creation. And his crowning achievement, we might say, is the creation of human beings. And you remember how our creation is described in chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We were created in the image of God. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that, and there's a lot of applications we could make. But one of the important facts about our being created in the image of God comes from the way God is described here, right? Because the text says that God says, let us make man in our image. If God is a triune God, he is a God of relationship. Which means if we were created in the image of God, we were created for relationship. Now we're gonna come back to that in a minute because our need for relationship becomes important in this story. Now, it doesn't take very long for a tension to be introduced into the story of Scripture. Every good story has a a tension. Well, the story of Scripture, which is more than just a story, the tension is introduced very early. In fact, if your Bible is like my Bible, it starts on the second page of Scripture in the story that we describe perhaps as the fall of man. Adam and Eve have this perfect relationship with God. There's intimacy. He walks in their midst in the garden. And in one moment of choosing what they wanted rather than what God wanted, they lose that intimacy. They lose that connection with God and that relationship is broken. You could read about that in Genesis chapter 3. Paul would describe it later in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, what else happened? And death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, when sin entered the world, things fundamentally changed for us. Death, sickness enters the world. And further, a separation between God and man. Isaiah writes about the separation that came between God and his people. But the way he describes in Isaiah chapter 59 is also descriptive of what happened in the fall, and it's descriptive of what happens for every single one of us when we sin. Here's what Isaiah says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is here dull that it cannot hear. Watch this. But your iniquities, that's a big fancy way of saying sin, your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear Just as sin had separated God from his people during Isaiah's time, and just as sin separates us from God today, sin separated Adam and Eve from God. And so now you've got this this tension. What's going to happen? How's this going to be resolved? Well, the rest of Scripture is a description of how God seeks to redeem man, or how he seeks to bring man back into 
to relationship with him. And it culminates in Jesus. You might see this part and say, well, this is the New Testament part of the story. And that's right, it culminates in the New Testament. But this part of the story begins in Genesis chapter 3 and runs through the entire Old Testament narrative all the way into the New Testament where it culminates in Jesus and it's carried on by the church. In fact, do you remember when God is doling out punishments for the, for the fall, for what happens in Genesis chapter 3? And he gives this unique, kind of odd punishment to, to the serpent. And what I want you to know is this is the first announcement of the gospel of Jesus. Watch what he says. Genesis 3 verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, watch this. He, who's he? He would be her offspring, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you got to read a little deeply here, but you know what that is. That's a prediction of Jesus winning the victory over Satan at the crucifixion and ultimately in the resurrection. And so we call this the Proto-Evangelium, the very first announcement of the gospel. And so you see this story of redemption all the way back in Genesis. It happens again in Genesis chapter 12 when God says to Abraham, hey, I want you to go to land, you don't know where you're going, and here's what will happen. In fact, let's read it, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Watch this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now how would it be that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Well, it's ultimately through the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And this story of redemption runs through the rest of Scripture and again culminates in Jesus now, the last part of the story is ultimately the part that we still anticipate today. We wait for eternity. We have a future hope. We look forward to the day when we'll spend eternity with God forever. Now, if someone were to ask you, okay, what is the Bible about? And you looked at this storyline and say, okay, this is, this is a summary of the entire narrative of Scripture. How would you... How would you sum that up? How would you say, okay, this is actually what the Bible is all about? Now, there might be different words or ways to answer that question. But I would suggest to you today that this entire story of Scripture is about mission. From beginning to end, this is about a God who cares so deeply about his creation that even when they rebel against him and fall, all of Scripture is about God seeking to redeem that relationship and bring us back into relationship with him. He is a God of mission. And so, what's the Bible all about? I would say it's about mission. And so, therefore, what is God all about? He is a God who is all about mission. And so, we might even describe this as all of Scripture is about the mission of God. 
Now, perhaps if you've thought through this before, maybe another way of saying this is, well, it's all about the scheme of redemption. In fact, I think they used to offer a course when I was a student at Fried Hardeman called Scheme of Redemption. It's the same thing we're talking about here. From beginning to end, all of Scripture is about God's plan to bring bring man back into relationship with him. It's about the mission of God. And maybe one kind of cool way to say it would be this. The entire Bible is a grand narrative of the mission of God. If you were to look at the entire story of Scripture with all of these little stories that are a part of it, historical facts, I would make sure you surely you know I'm, I'm saying that, but this entire story, this entire narrative is about a God of mission. Now here's why this is helpful Sometimes my motivation for mission isn't very strong. But if God is a God of mission and the entire biblical story is a story of mission, then it doesn't really matter how I feel. I am motivated for mission no matter what because I serve a God of mission. So this whole thing is about the, the mission of God. Now another question we might ask is, well, how would you, how would you define this, Matt? What is God's mission then? Now, people might answer that in, in different ways. And again, I told you we'd dive a little deep. I, I know you guys can handle it. Some people would say, well, it's about taking care of, of humanity, taking care of his creation. And maybe there's some truth in that. Or some would say, well, it's about taking care of, of all the created order. But as you look at Scripture, I have to believe that God's mission is a spiritual one. While he cares about us physically and he cares about his creation, his primary concern, as you read all of Scripture, is to save the lost. What is the mission of God? It is to save the lost. Now, that's kind of simple. Let's make it a little more fancy than that. We could say it like this, to initiate reconciliation between himself and mankind. Or maybe another way to say it simply is this, to save mankind from their sins. As I read scripture from beginning to end, it really is this simple. This is the mission of God. Now, sometimes when we talk about mission, we talk about our mission or my mission or this church's mission. But as I read scripture and see a God of mission throughout, it is a reminder that God is the great initiator of mission. Not me, not you, not your missionaries, not the church. God is the initiator of mission. In fact, you might even be saying, well, where do you get this in in Scripture? The Bible doesn't ever say this explicitly, and you're right, but turn to Luke 24 for just a moment. Luke 24, and this is one of Jesus' final meetings with his disciples, and this would be Luke's version, if you will, of the Great Commission, So Luke 24, and we'll start reading in verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he says, okay, everything in the Old Testament, in reality, it all points to me and it must be fulfilled. And then there's this interesting phrase, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, for the apostles, for the disciples of Jesus, the scriptures were the Old Testament. And so 
Luke says he, Jesus opened their mind to understand the Old Testament, if you will. Now, what would it look like for them to have their minds opened to understand their scriptures? Watch what Jesus says, verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written. So what's the Old Testament about? What, what would it mean if you understood the scriptures? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So when the text says that they had their minds open to Scripture, it then describes what Jesus does, or what Jesus says in verse 45 and 46, 46 and 47. What's, mission, what's the entire Old Testament about? What's it mean to have your mind open to the Scriptures? It's all about Jesus and mission. Jesus says, oh, here's what the Old Testament pointed to, that I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then this message of repentance will be proclaimed to all the nations. So what's, what are the scriptures about? What's this story? Jesus himself would say it's about me and it's about mission. The entire narrative of scripture is about the mission of God. In fact, let me share a couple of quotes with you this morning. Peter says it like this. It is my impression that the Bible is not a book about theology as such, but rather a record of theology and mission. What's the Bible about? God in action in behalf of the salvation of mankind. From beginning to end, it's about a God taking action for us. It is about a God of mission. Now again, let's... Come up and take a deep breath here and say, okay, that's, that's interesting. Think through scripture like that. What's, that. what's that mean for us? What difference does that make for us as we struggle to find a consistent motivation for missions? Well, here's what I would say. If the entire Bible is about mission and the mission of God, I need no other motivation than that to be passionate about missions myself. And you know what? Even when my own passion or love or compassion fades, the mission of God does not change. He is a God of mission no matter how I feel and no matter what I'm going through. Now, let's take this down another level perhaps. Personally, what does this, what's this do for you? Here's the one thing I'd hope you would remember from our Bible class time this morning. If it's the case that all of Scripture is about a God of mission, then my mission is God's mission. It's not my mission. It's ultimately God's mission. And I simply participate in what God is already, already doing. I remember reading a blog from some missionaries that's been four or five years ago, and they were some young missionaries trying to figure out what they were going to do. And they were facing some difficulty and some conflict with their, their overseeing church. They're living in another country. And in, in the blog, they're just kind of struggling through their emotions, and I understand that. And they said, we're just trying to figure out what our mission is. And again, I understand what they were trying to say. But perhaps it would have been helpful in discovering their mission to understand that their mission really isn't their mission. It's God's mission. And they simply participate in what our great God, the initiator of mission, is doing. But let me add this. It's not just about me. My mission is God's mission. It's not, it's not my mission. But I think we could add this. The church's mission 
isn't really just the church's mission. It goes higher than that. The church's mission is God's mission. You see, it's really easy to get focused on us. It's really easy to get focused on our programs and what we are doing and forget that the source of this mission is ultimately God and it's not our mission, it's not this church's mission, it's God's mission. Maybe you could think of it like this. Perhaps you could think of it in terms of a, a bucket and a pipe. All right, so if you are collecting water with a, with a bucket, what are you doing? You're hoarding that water, aren't you? You're collecting the, you say you're holding a big bucket and you're collecting that water perhaps out of a, a waterfall and th- that water is, is yours. But let's say that you carry a pipe, maybe a long set of pipes. You want to stream that water or channel that water to somebody who, who needs it. Perhaps, not that you would do this with a waterfall. I know nothing about how to channel waters. Bear with me here. You would connect that pipe and you would put it at the waterfall and that water would be channeled somewhere else. Sometimes we're like buckets when it comes to the blessings of God. We have our, our bucket and, and we want God to pour out his blessings on us individually, perhaps on us as a church, but we don't have any intention of sharing those blessings. When we understand that our mission really isn't really our mission, that it's God's mission, then we see ourselves more like pipes. We are just conduits through which the blessings of God flow. It's not... These aren't our blessings. They are blessings from God. God's mission is simply something that we allow to channel through our lives. We experience the blessings of it, but our ultimate goal is to share those blessings with others. Why? Because my mission isn't really my mission. My mission is God's mission. Let me share one more quote, and then we'll, I hope, get really practical for a minute. Christopher Wright says this, and you kind of have to think about this, this quote for a second. Here's what he says. Mission is not ours. Mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Or has been nicely put, watch this. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. You kind of got to think about that one for a second. But sometimes we talk about mission as if it was kind of an add-on. God instituted the church and he's like, well, I better give them something to do. Here's the Great Commission. Or could it be that God was a God of mission before he even institutes the church and the church is a tool that God uses to fulfill his mission? Which came first, mission or the church? The mission of God came first. And we are, as a church, a tool that God uses to take this message to the nations. Now, again, let's, let's come up and take a deep breath and say, okay, great. So this is an unchanging motivation for missions. The entire Bible is about missions. God is a God of mission. Now, what difference does that make for you sitting in these pews right now this morning? Let me suggest just a couple of things. First of all, it means that I care deeply I didn't include the word should because I think that's a given. I, if my mission is God's mission, then I care deeply about global missions. Now, occasionally I'll, I'll talk about missions at a church and someone will come up to me and say something like this. Brother Terry, you've probably experienced as well. And they'll say, thanks for coming, enjoyed that lesson, but I'm not really into missions. 
And I don't know if that's supposed to be like a, a comp, I don't know what it's supposed to, to mean, but they, they remind you. In fact, I had this just last year with a member of the church where I preach. I talked about missions, he came and said, enjoyed your lesson. I don't, I'm not really into missions. Well, here's the thing. If we serve a God who is a God of mission, and if I can make the case that all of Scripture is about his mission, and that my mission ought to be God's mission, then I better care deeply about mission simply because of who God is and what he's done for me. And so I want to challenge you to buy in passionately to the missions program of this church. That the elders, or again, I don't know exactly how it functions, if you have a missions committee, whatever it is, however it functions here, and whoever makes the decisions under the oversight of the elders here about missions, I would encourage you, if God's mission is ultimately my mission, then I ought to buy in passionately to the missions program of this church because our God is a God of mission and the leaders of this church are trying to carry out that mission. But let's get a little more personal. If my mission is God's mission, then I ought to live on mission. Now, I think we're gonna have several of, a few of your missionaries here today, but let's say you, you, pay a, you oversee a missionary, you pay them to go to a foreign field. What do you expect out of them? Well, a lot of things, but do you expect them to live intentionally? Do you expect them, no matter what they do and where they go, do you expect them to live intentionally on mission? Well, of course. They're your missionaries. That's what missionaries do. Every relationship they see through the lens of the gospel. When I was on the mission field, that's how, that's how it was. And it was partly because it was my job. So I'd go to the little bodega on the corner, and little corner store, and I'd say, I'd have a conversation, but you better believe I was thinking through that conversation and that relationship through the lens of the gospel and thinking, okay, how can I, how might I share the gospel with this person as we develop this relationship? When I went to the, the money-changing place or I went to the restaurant, the same restaurant, and had the same waitress over and over again, every relationship was intentionally seen through the lens of the gospel. We expect that out of our missionaries, but if all of Scripture is about mission and my mission is God's mission, then not just our missionaries should be living intentionally on mission. Every single one of us should wake up every day and view our lives through the focus of God or through the lens of God's mission. Every relationship that I have ought to be viewed through the lens of the gospel with at least the thought of I'm representing Christ here. How can I represent him well in a way that might give me the opportunity to share the gospel later? Which means, when you're at the ball field, got a five and a seven-year-old. Both one's a seven-year-old girl, five-year-old boy, which means they play on opposite nights, which means we're at the ball fields every night of the week. When I go to the ball fields, you better believe even though I'm not a full-time cross-cultural missionary, I ought to be intentional in the way that I interact with people at the ball field. When you're at work, if your mission is God's mission, then you're not just going to work to do your job. Your first priority is to reflect the love of Christ and to live on mission. It means that you live intentionally. Here's perhaps another thing that it means. It simply means I'm a tool in the hand of God. Go for just a second to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 10. There's this great little passage, perhaps you've never noticed before. 
Isaiah 10, God is, again, doling out punishments to the enemies of Israel. And I want to read, starting with verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So there's this king of Assyria that God has used to punish his people, but he's arrogant, and God says he's going to be punished too. For he says, here's his arrogant speech, verse 13, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. And you can continue reading and see his arrogant speech. So he says, look what I've done as I have punished the nations, as I have conquered others. And then God responds with the reality in verse 15. Shall the acts boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. In other words, God says, is, if somebody's hammering a nail with a hammer, does the hammer look up at the guy holding the hammer and say, look what I'm doing, I'm pretty awesome? No, that's just a tool in the person's hand who is swinging the hammer. And God's point is to the king of Assyria, this isn't about you. You are just a tool in my hand. And when we understand that the mission is God's and that my mission is simply God's mission, then it allows me to see myself as simply a tool in the hand of God, not as someone who's really important who's doing it on my own. And then the last thing I would say is this. If my mission is God's mission, then I participate in the mission of God wherever I am. Now, today is about global missions, and I believe that there is a, a special distinction to be held between a cross-cultural missionary and what we do here at home. And so I hesitate to say everybody's a missionary, but there is a sense in which if all of Scripture is about mission and we are to live on mission, there is a sense in which all of us are missionaries wherever we go. I think about Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. The Christians are scattered after the, the killing of Stephen and the persecution is heavy. And you remember what verse 4 says? It says, wherever they go, they were proclaiming the word. These weren't cross-cultural missionaries. These were normal Christians. Wherever they went, they recognized that they were a part of the mission of God and they spread this message. So the question you've got to ask is, tomorrow when I go to work or when I go to school, or I go to the ball field tomorrow night, or wherever it is you go tomorrow, how can I live on mission? Because my mission isn't really my mission. My mission isn't to get good grades. My mission ultimately isn't to get a raise or climb the corporate ladder. My mission is God's mission, and I partner with him to initiate, now I can't create reconciliation, but I'm partnering with God to point people to the reconciliation that only God can provide. So here's my challenge to you as we close today. Maybe a way to think through this, well, number one, this is an unchanging motivation. God is a God of mission no matter how I feel. But perhaps if you're looking for a way to put this into practice every day, maybe you write somewhere, maybe on a note card, maybe you stick it in your mirror at home or somewhere on your phone, background of your phone, somewhere where you can see it every day, you write this down. Today, I will live on mission. So that when you walk out the door to go to school, 
or to go to work or to go wherever it is that you go, you're reminded, this isn't about me. This isn't about my motives. This isn't about what I want to do today. This is about God and me participating in his mission because my mission is God's mission. Imagine if every single Christian in Montgomery walked out their front doors and said, today, I'm on mission with God. Imagine the impact that the people of God could have in his name. I'm about to finish up my fifth year teaching at Freed Hardeman. It's hard to believe it's been five years. My first semester, um, I imagine we've got some folks who teach at Faulkner here. You know how your first year goes? You're just trying to figure out what in the world you're doing. And you're just trying to, you're scraping by, you're rolling into class at the last minute, barely have finished your notes and thrown something onto a PowerPoint. And I remember my first semester, I had said on one of the first days, or I remember repeatedly saying, it was Life of Christ, the freshman level Life of Christ, 7.30 in the morning. So it was a smaller class, several athletes who wanted to get their classes over early. And I remember saying things like, I'd mention something about Jesus. I'd say, well, you already know about that. And I'd kind of skip over it. And I'd assume, okay, they've got this figured out. We're at Freed Hardeman, right? Well, about halfway through the semester, well, after about a quarter of the way through the semester, a, a student came to my office. Now, I should have pieced this together before, but I'm, I'm kind of dense sometimes based on, um, based on multiple things. He came to my office and he said, I'm, I'm having trouble in your class. And he said, I'm a Muslim, and so I don't know anything about Jesus. And I thought, well, yeah, I guess this would be challenging for you. This is all brand new for, for you. So I slowed down a little bit. And I made sure to talk about the little things that perhaps I assumed everybody knew about and slowed down that way everybody could, could understand a little bit better. Last day of the semester, and I never did this again just because it didn't, I didn't think it worked that well, but on the last day of class, I had an iPad that I connected to the screen and I said, okay, again, it was a smaller class so it worked. I said, I want you to give me one word, one adjective, one descriptive, whatever, whatever word, one noun that you think describes Jesus as we come to the end of this semester. And I said, I'll write it on, on my iPad, and, and I know I look like I'm writing like a two-year-old, but it's hard to write on an iPad, all right? So I wrote all these descriptions down, and it's the stuff you would expect. Servant, compassion, merciful, king, you see, forgiveness, multiple people mentioned that, and I wrote it all, all the way down. And this particular Muslim student sat in the, the back corner of the room, and so he was going to be last, and I almost expected him to say pass or just kind of shake his head at me. He didn't want to say anything, and I would, have, I would have been fine with that. So I got to him, and I was curious what he would do, and he said the word that you find in the middle bottom of the screen. When I said, okay, what's, give me one word that describes who Jesus is to you, and he said, Savior. Now, I don't know if he ever, ever came to faith in Jesus. It was the last time I had him in a class. saw him several times, nice kid. I was pretty, I didn't even know what was, I didn't know that faith perhaps was developing in the heart of this young man as we studied scripture, but this was a moment that I was reminded that I am simply a tool in the hand of God, even when I don't know, I didn't do that, I didn't even know for the first half of the semester what his situation was, I didn't know, but even when I don't know, God can use me as a tool in his hand why? Because he is a God of mission, which means no matter where I go, no matter what I'm doing, I ought to look for opportunities 
to participate in what God is doing. Why? Because my mission is not my mission. My mission is God's mission. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for initiating reconciliation for us through Jesus Christ. Father, we are not here today because of our own goodness, but because of your love and compassion and goodness and because of Jesus Christ. And so we praise you today because of what you've done and how you've saved us. Father, in turn, help us to see our lives simply as tools in your mission. Father, help us to live on mission every single day, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing. We pray for missionaries across the globe who are living on mission. But Father, help us to see that right here in Montgomery, we also are called to live on mission. Help us to do so passionately and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.